0: a professional working in the field, or a person diagnosed with an AI arthritis disease, this podcast is for you. So pull up a chair and take a seat at the table.
1: Hello, and welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360. This is the official talk show for the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis, or AI Arthritis for short. My name is Tiffany Westrich robertson I am the CEO of the organization, and I am a person living with the diseases. And very apropos, I might say, for today's topic, I am living with axial spondyloarthritis, and I have a fellow co-host with me today, Rick. Hey, Rick.
2: Hey, Tiffany. I'm Rick Phillips and I also live with ankylosing spondylitis.
1: And we went to Ular sort of together.
2: <laughs> kind of kind of separately.
1: Separately and together because yeah. this year the conference was not in person and we were able to obtain all of the sessions online. And one of the things our organization's doing, it, some of you may be going with us to Ular, is since June, we have had a lot of patients watching the sessions and then reviewing them with us and opening up dialogue because we realize when patients come together to talk about this, it's really bringing another stakeholder to the table. And our voices alongside these researchers and rheumatologists and, and other healthcare stakeholders can start to open our eyes and maybe fill in some of the gaps and even possibly more important, (laughs) help our own healthcare journeys. So we've been doing that and we asked Rick as one of our repetitive co-hosts here at the show, hey, do you want to help us watch a session? And if so, which? And this was one of them on the list. So Rick, I'm so happy to be here talking about the topics that we're going to talk about today with you.
2: I was so excited to pick this one when it came up. I saw it on the list early, and when it came up as a possibility, I, I fired right in to <laughs> claim it. Uh, so I was so excited to grab hold of it and to be able to attend. It, it allows me to do something that I don't think that I would have gotten the chance to otherwise.
1: I think that's a really valid point, too, that you just said on a side note, is Having the opportunity to see these research sessions is something that often I know Rick. You go to conferences a lot. (laughs) I I see you there, (laughs) and we have had the opportunities to go and be there in person and sit at these sessions. And now there's these opportunities for every patient in the world to be able. If they don't necessarily want to watch them, they have us to disseminate the information back, and then ask them to come sit at the table with us and continue the conversation and that's just a whole new world and in a really exciting one so I'm glad that you signed up to lead this one with me and what is this one so we were really drawn as both people living with spondyloarthritis to a hot topic session this year at Ular called treat to target in axpa or axial spondyloarthritis myth or reality <laughs> This <laughs> is so, so, so suspenseful. <laughs> so we we wanted to choose this too because as an organization, our job is having patients be at the table so that we can be equals with other stakeholders to sort of identify those missing gaps and and solve the problems. But also, we do find through through conversation that we are able to improve our own journeys. We talk to each other. We say, you know, that's a really great point. And then it's, it's like an elevated support group (laughs) of of, of knowledge. And, and so we wanted to take this one specifically because treat to target is a very big issue that we are dealing with and that we want to help patients understand at our organization and just a little history on treat to target. So, About a decade ago, when we would go to these research conferences, treat-to-target meant something different. And that's just important to note because it's going to be relevant (laughs) to what what we talk about today. So treat-to-target was, let's see if a treatment, when used aggressively, can result in improved disease management because biologics had not gone through the extensive research or the extensive trials. So to get the proof, they needed to do the trials. So we see this evolving over the decade. And what happens now, we're seeing it this year and and starting really, uh, I guess, about last year, is treat to target, the definition is evolving too. So if it's a different mechanism of treatment. We're not necessarily testing to see if this works. Now they know it works. (laughs) So the research has to be more along the lines of will treating to target understanding the complexity of the diseases as we understand them today, knowing that the biological could treat the disease, but there's other comorbidities and there's other things to consider, including shared decision-making now that's really hot with involving the patient and the doctor. And that was not part of treat to target back when it was just let's treat aggressively. It was this what my doctor wants to do. Let's do it. I mean, Rick, think think about back in in your experience. When were you diagnosed anyway?
2: I was diagnosed with RA in 2000 Mm -hmm. and spondylitis in uh, 2015. So treat to target meant something entirely different in the year 2005 than it does today. Certainly, what it meant in 2005 colored my thinking as I started listening to these sessions. And it really gave me an opportunity to evolve my thinking a little bit. And I, I thought that was one of the cool parts about the session.
1: Mm-hmm. Me too. When, you know, when I first was diagnosed, my original was rheumatoid arthritis. Right. And that was after being a mystery patient for two years, <laughs> getting undifferentiated disease mixed in there. One of the reasons I was such a mystery that we know now is because I did not meet the diagnostic criteria for ankylosing spondylitis. Mm-hmm. I was HLA-B27 negative. I mean, at the time it was considered more of a male disease, and I also had no radiographic imaging. It seemed like what I was feeling ticked all the boxes, but they couldn't diagnose it. And so rheumatoid arthritis was the closest thing, and it got me on medications. Then when non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis came to be in this past decade, that opened up all the doors for me you know, because I was able to then be on a treatment that was indicated for spondyloarthritis, not rheumatoid arthritis. And it changed my whole quality of life.
2: In my case, I was diagnosed like you with RA. And I think the reason was, is because there was a treatment for RA, but there was no treatment really for ankylosing spondylitis. Mm. You you fell really where the treatment was. And as we come to find out, the medication used for treating RA is now approved to be used for ankylosing spondylitis. So it all worked out in the end, but the prescription and the basic diagnosis was RA, and it was like pulling teeth to get recognition of the second disease.
1: Oh, yeah. I I understand. I think a lot lot of people listening understand. And, you know, you said, what, did you say 2005? That was the first. And then 2015. Uh And, you know, it doesn't seem like in saying 2005, I mean, that's 15 years. In the grand scope of things, that doesn't seem like it's that long. But wow, how far we have come.
2: (laughs) Right. Because when I was diagnosed, there were three basic treatments. And one of those was almost brand new. The other two have been around for some time. And the doctor was prepared to fight the insurance company to get me on one of those two. He laid it out very clearly, this is what we're going to do. And in fact, that's exactly what we did to get me there. Now to add then AS as a second disease category. Well, that took more effort on my part speaking with the doctor than it did the doctor speaking with the insurance company.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, it, it was a little bit of a little bit of a reverse situation.
1: Right. And I should preface, Rick and I are both located in the United States, so um, the insurance will often dictate what medication we're required to take first, and right. that, that varies regardless in different places of the world, but I know there's still access challenges. It just might be called something under a different umbrella name, right. but that's a very good point to bring up because it's going to be relevant to what we talk about here as we move forward. And what is that? So we wanted to incorporate the research that we learned about when we were at ULAR and specifically the Street to Target in Expo, Myth or Reality. First, you know, the name really caught my attention when it said Myth or Reality because this whole time we've been going to these sessions. Everything's about treat to target. There's, there's been the hot button, the hot, the hot things. Treat to target's one of them. And this was the first time that I saw myth or reality on it. Like it's being questioned. And then I started thinking, you know, and you know, too, Rick, as people living with spondyloarthritis, there's a continuum of the disease, and just like with RA too, there's radiographic progression and non-radiographic, which is what I have. I may never get to radiographic. Mm. And so how do you measure a treat to target for me? So that was something that I found interesting to look at. If the end result in most treat to targets are low disease activity and often measuring damage. if You don't have damage. Mm. How do you How does does that work? So, you want to jump in here and talk a little bit about the studies that we- So,
2: there were three of them, and the first one was an examination, a 12-month examination of treat-to-target guidelines. It showed that the factors that led to an examination of treat-to-target, that it really had very little impact upon the outcome of the disease in 12 months. But- Again, AS is a progressive disease. It's something that might not show up for 15 years. So who knows if there was really any change in the patient population during that first 12 months. Right. And the researcher made that point that it was not really a complete view of what the outcome might be if the study were lengthened for several years. Right. Right. The second thing was it really pointed out the external factors that influenced these outcomes. For instance, in the study that was done, 38 to 40% of the participants were smokers. And while that seems really high in the United States, I don't think it was necessarily a shock to the researcher. I think that we believe that smoking is a major factor in disease progression. At least that's certainly what my doctor tells me. So I think that was a big factor in applying the study outside the European environment. And then finally, the researcher believed that treat to target was slightly financially better, but not significantly better. In other words, having more aggressive treatment was a better bargain for the payer, but it was not a significantly better bargain. And that's where the issue of the payer and insurance really comes to play. Because I think most of us, many of us, have fought to get specific treatments with our insurance companies or our or our payers. If these treatments are not demonstrating financial viability, then that will become even more difficult.
1: Mm -hmm. That's a good point. And I'm going to add on to some of the research points that Rick has said, but what you're talking about with the needing of research. So if there's not proof, enough proof that there's cost savings, then it won't move the needle. And in order to get proof also other than cost you need for our particular system in the United States our organization well i was the the author of it but it was called the ethics of step therapy and essentially what we found was that research drives cost decisions so the people who are choosing the preferred medications are choosing them because there is some clinical research that is demonstrating safety and efficacy in a particular treatment. And then if it's negotiated at the lower price, that but they can cite the research. So that really opens up to why this particular study was so important. And it was called, hold on, I have it here. <laughs> it was called the TECO SPA, which is Tight Control of Spondyloarthritis Trial, And the reason that the researchers wanted to do it, although, as Rick said, there were a lot of issues with the way the trial was set up and the way they had to do the analysis, and that caused for some not so stellar results that were not as statistically significant as they would have liked. But here's some of the things about it that I think put us on the right direction. So this TECO SPA study The reason that they decided to do it was because there are recommendations for treat to target, which I'll circle back to and and tell you a little bit about. And they didn't think that those were being adopted by the medical community as much as maybe they should. And the thought process was doctors need proof. (laughs) So let's give them some proof. And that's why this study was set up as a trial. So that there could be some proof, some research, some clinical research that could go along with these recommendations that were pretty generalized and were heavy in suggesting that there had to be a tight doctor-patient relationship, sort of a a shared decision-making if you will. Now, as Rick said, it was 12 months, and that's difficult. As we were just telling our stories, the radiographic damage can take a long time. So the researchers had this choice. Do we change the outcome measure? Meaning the outcome measure in a lot of trials, the endpoint being structural damage, that's what you typically would do for treat to target. The, The treatment should target and stop the damage, but if you only have 12 months, how do you do that? So they chose a different outcome, and they wanted to choose inflammation and essentially how it's affecting disease activity and quality of life. There was a lot of problems with the way it was set up, and that's one of the reasons why they feel they didn't get the research or the data from it that they wanted to get. But in saying that, they did use the ankylosing spondylitis disease activity score or ASDAS to rank the disease activity in the study. And while they didn't meet that, they did cite some of the, what we call biases and biases would be issues that could skew the results. And Rick mentioned the 12 months. Another one was the fact that they set this up to be usual care versus treat to target. And the usual care was done inside of offices or clinics where experts in spondyloarthritis were practicing. So is that really usual care?
2: Well, the difficulty is, as you say, I don't know what usual care is. Usual care at my rheumatologist office is a mixture of treat-to-target at least giving the verbal cue, treat-to-target, and how are you doing? That is what usual care is to me. So if usual care involved discussing treat-to-target with patients, then it's really a cross-factor pollination between the two types. And if it wasn't discussing treat-to-target, if that was not part of usual care, even a small part of it, then I don't think that that's modern care. I don't think that that's real-world typical care. So, I mean, there it was very difficult. Yeah, it, It's a very difficult comparison between the two populations. I don't think the two populations were really as discreet as one might have wanted them to be. And I don't think that necessarily the outcome time frame was appropriate to demonstrate much of anything. This is a slow moving condition. It doesn't mean that you are diagnosed today and in three months you're, you're not able to walk, or that, that is just not typical. It is more typical that you're diagnosed today and maybe in 10 years you're having difficulty walking. Mm-hmm. So a one-year one time frame, it really, it really doesn't show much. Yeah. It, and in fact, to their credit, they did not try to make it show much. They acknowledged that none of these factors that they saw were statistically significant. So it's not like they were trying to shoehorn results into a preconceived outcome. And that, that's something I really appreciate about it.
1: Yeah, I agree. So in addition to what you just said, I also appreciate the fact that they recognized a missing link to get this adopted. And that would be um, these recommendations that were published in 2017. We can put a link to them on our website if you'd like to learn more about them. But essentially, they were created by a group of international representatives that included clinicians, also included patients. I saw some names. Got to give a big shout out to my friend, Martin DeWitt. Martin, you're going to have to come on the show. Cause I think that's like the 10th shout out you've received. <laughs> so I think by default, that means you have to come on and, and be, and and be a guest co-host if not a guest. So these are, are fairly new. And those who published them did say that it was going to take more research likely to adapt what they have put forth and then to go back and adjust them. So kudos to the research team who said, you know what? They just said, we in order to adopt these, let's do research and they did what they could, but it just it's just the nature of this disease. 12 months, you're not going to get a lot. And I do want to circle back and just mention when we were talking about the usual care. Rick I had the same question you did. Well, what is usual care? (laughs) Literally right before we got on together, I went back to the session because I didn't write this down. I didn't even remember them saying. And the, the main difference was the treat to target. The doctor was given a specific way of treating them. I wasn't able to look up what that entailed, but they had a very specific treat to target And they would see the patient every four weeks, whereas the usual care did not receive this packet of information and guidance. And they saw the patient every three months, and it was up to them how they wanted to treat them. So that was their idea of usual care. But what you said is so right on, in my opinion, as a person not only living with spondyloarthritis, just being in the rheumatology community and hearing so many patients with the same story, if your doctor is well-versed in your disease, how do you measure usual care, especially if it's in a facility where there are proven experts in spondyloarthritis? They likely do treat to target in some capacity. So I already would envision, if I were developing this study before it ever went out, that's the first thing I would have, Pointed out as a person living with these diseases is to say, you want to find usual care. You're going to have to talk to patients that literally have doctors that do not seem to care or do not give them the time and they end up firing them. That's what I would compare to doctors who don't adopt it.
2: You're that or patients who never get to a rheumatologist. Yes. Because I think that there are those patients as well, people who have this particular disease who are told you have this and it's very slow moving. So we'll just watch it and we'll keep you here. You know, maybe you have other issues that we're treating, you know, perhaps type two diabetes or or depression or something else that we're treating in this clinic. And so we'll watch watching ankylosing spondylitis. And watching, that really isn't usual care in a rheumatologist office. But I suspect it's more usual care in people who never get to a rheumatologist.
1: You know, I can actually add a story to that, Rick, as an example of somebody who that happened to. That's how my diagnosis got delayed. I was told I want to wait and watch you get worse by a rheumatologist.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Opposite of treat to target. Right. And so it kind of goes back to in 2000 when treat to target meant something different and the doctors had to be had to receive proof from research that aggressive treatment would work. It does make me wonder you know, how every doctor's different. Every I don't know if everyone goes to the ACR or to ULAR, you know, and some doctors, do they still do that? I mean, I hope they don't. That was 2007, but, you know, that was that long ago, (laughs) you know, a decade ago when, when I was being told wait and watch. So that is its own question that I'm very curious about in talking to more rheumatologists is how often does that happen? How common is treat to target? And if, treat-to-target is usual care, then what is the difference between usual care that includes treat-to-target and a pure treat-to-target regimen? I I don't know. I think that's that's an important question. But let's jump into the second part was talking about controversies. Ooh, they have great names for this one. (laughs) Myth or reality and controversy. That'll suck you in right there. But they were talking about the controversies and they started off saying, first, we need to understand what is the definition of treat to target. We've been saying that since we started this conversation today. What is treat to target?
3: Mm -hmm.
1: I mean, essentially, A general definition is based on identifying a specific target or specific therapeutic agent that is going to help the patient achieve a measurable outcome of improvement. And usually that involves structural damage and it's changing now. So not only if that was the definition established in, I don't know what year, I'm just going (laughs) to 10 years ago when we started this journey, The research has shown it works, but now the research is also showing that our diseases, whether it's spondyloarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, they are complex and multifaceted. What this particular person was speaking about also involved, not only do we need to clarify what treat to target is, but we need to think about the comorbidities that exist. Because your treat to target may not always involve that one structural damage. So I know, Rick, you mentioned you have comorbidities. Well,
2: yeah. And the truth is a well-respected rheumatologist once told me that all of these rheumatic diseases are actually like whack-a-mole. They will show up as a problem in joint A, but in a year it'll be joint B or it will be a skin issue this month and an organ issue three months from now. And he said, this is like whack-a-mole. You get set to treat something, you chase it, you hopefully help it, and then something else will pop up. There is no self-defined criteria for any of these. Medicine in this area is still art and science is still, yes, I have examined this person, and yes, in my professional judgment, this is what this person has. Because there is just no locked-in definition for any of these negative outcomes. And in fact, AS is perhaps the least defined of any of them. AS encompasses psoriatic arthritis, it encompasses factors that look like rheumatoid arthritis, it is truly the whack-a-mole disease. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem with treat-to-target.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I knew you were going to say some things that were going to really hit home for me. I think the first thing that is really important is you need to know what the person has to do treat-to-target. And this particular researcher mentioned, number one, bullet point number one, treat-to-target, what is the disease? Well, If the idea, the original idea, let's go back to the original idea, of treat to target is to treat aggressively with the hope that the person will eventually be able to go into remission and you're removing treatments. That's the first time we've seen that at any of the research Mm -hmm. conventions that we've gone to over the last several years. Just this session, this summer, they're coming up with these studies to show the potential of getting off of your treatments as a result of treat to target. But that means you have to get in there early. And if you don't have the Mm. right diagnosis and you don't have the right disease, that's problem number one, right, with treat to target. And then the other thing that you mentioned with spondyloarthritis is that you've got this complexity. So what is the long-term outcome? Is it I'm treating to target to meet every three months, six months? And as you said, that A lot of people don't see their rheumatologist that much, Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but what are we targeting? And that was something that, that was brought up here. So what happens if you end up developing cardiovascular issues? That's not something you might go into and treat to target when you're first diagnosed you're mainly targeting stopping the disease progression, not thinking about the comorbidities, but that's something you have to think about.
2: And then the overall issue is really most people will identify pain as the one large factor that they wish to deal with in treat to target. This is the one factor that I want to decrease the most. This is the one issue I want to get under control the most. But As we see in this particular disease and in RA, I think, as you reduce pain, these other factors begin to show up. And it's, well, yes, I'm not as painful in the afternoon, but you know, it would be really nice if I could go to the playground and play with my kids. Mm -hmm. And I can't do that. Well, that's an entirely different target than the original, I just want to get rid of pain. Right. And uh, it doesn't make it any less valid, but it's a a different target. So targets get substituted.
1: Yeah, I think, and evolving, that word has come up several times since we started today. I think that's a key takeaway here, is what originally was defined as treat to target, a decade ago, has evolved into meaning something different. And at the same time, Mm That difference includes the understanding that our diseases are more complex and have different variants that also need to be managed. Right. That's where the big the big challenge comes in. You had some other points. Did you want to bring up anything? I have other things with this, but did you want to bring up anything on your review from the controversy?
2: Again, it looked to me like the really great thing about the second study was that it- Lasted 12 years. So it was a multi year study. Now, the bad thing about that is it started well before the new TCOR guidelines were published. But you sort of have to pick your poison. You know, if you're going to do a 12 year evaluation, then you have to stake your claim and ride it. Mm-hmm. So that was just a research thing. But the second thing and the not so good thing is that people kept dropping out of the study it was very difficult to maintain people in the 12-year time frame for the entire 12 years. The study population kept whittling down because people self-selected out or factors came about which prevented them from continuing. And that really weakened the viability of the, of the research being done. And, and that's really a factor of how long the study period was. Obviously, the longer the study period, the more likely it is that participants will drop for one reason or another.
1: So we have one study that was very short <laughs> and it presents its own issues. Mm-hmm. And then you have one that is long and presents others. You know, one of the things that I know you brought up as well when I was reading your review of this was they're talking about these controversies and they mentioned the naming. And they mentioned the complexity and the comorbidities. And like you said, whack-a-mole. How do you chase the whack-a-mole when you're doing treat to target? I mean, he didn't say that in the presentation, but (laughs) that's a great way of saying it. Another challenge that he pointed out was patient education and patient involvement and patient reporting. Did you want to to lead on that?
2: Well, it was just that the least viable option for improvement of patients was patient education alone. So I liken this to bringing the patient into the room and scaring them into, this is going to happen to you unless you do this, or if you don't do what I say, this is going to happen to you. It really just did not work. It was the least viable treatment approach. And in fact, I can understand that particularly with this disease, because it's a long-term disease. If you tell someone that unless you do this today, 10 years from now, you're going to end up with a car that nobody likes. Well, you say to yourself, that's way in the future. I don't have to worry about that. And I'll have the ability to change my mind five years from now. And people will just put stuff off. I just don't think the big scare is going to work with anybody, and it certainly did not work in this case.
1: So he mentioned this, as you said, Rick, when you look at the scheme of what influences change, and education is is kind of on the bottom, and essentially regulations or laws is on the top because you have to follow what right. what is put out by your government or or your healthcare system. So that is always going to be an obstacle. He specifically talked about a study in Paris where they went through and looked through electronic medical records, and I didn't get the, the number of patients, but they were looking to see how many had filled out variety of forms. They had a whole list of forms. And so for patients, this would be the form you get when you walk in the office and they say, here, fill this out. We need to measure your disease activity today. And they specifically were looking at two because those were relevant to the first study we referenced that was the first ever attempt to have a clinical research trial in treat to target in spondyloarthritis. So they specifically went back and looked at two of them. Of those two, one is called the BASDI and one is called the ASDAS and for the BASDI, which is a more popular one, it's been around a little bit more. Only 30% or less of patients had that logged consistently in their medical records. And then when they looked at the ASDAS, which is the newer one, that is a result of the updated recommendations in 2017 through ULAR, less than 1%. (laughs) So... It really begs the question, are rheumatologists adopting those recommendations, which is why the research was done in the very first place? That very first study, they said, well, we're doing this because we don't think doctors are adopting this because we don't think there's any research. And let's conduct the research. And that particular disease activity score sheet is tied to the recommendations. So that's something I personally would like to learn a little bit more about. Speaking of going into the doctor, you and I were talking about this before, Rick, that in itself is an issue. I can't tell you how many times I go in and I don't get done with the form before I go into the office. Mm -hmm. And then I say, oh, I didn't get done. They said, it's okay. And they just take it.
2: I don't think mine has probably ever changed. You know, they ask you what your pain score is. And I always say six. I mean, it's got to be extraordinarily better or extraordinarily worse for me not to say six. Why? Because I know that if I say six, things will remain the same. If I say five, then the doctor will say, oh, we're making progress. But then if I come back and say six, he'll say, oh, what changed? What is it that set us back here? Well, in fact, what's the difference between a five and a six? I don't know. You know, and what's the difference between a six and a seven? I have no idea. So I just find it easier to keep it the same because I can't explain it and the doctor can't explain it to me. So why why go through that? I suspect that these scales are all pretty much that way. Yes, they might be more detailed. Yes, it may be more difficult to keep them straight. But I've been going to physical therapy now for eight weeks, and I haven't changed my physical therapy score. Why? Because I don't know what they mean. I have no idea what it means. If I ask the physical therapist, she doesn't know either. At least she doesn't know in a way that she can explain it to me. And rheumatology is the very same. As a matter of fact, all scales that we are asked to fill out are the same. Now, I think that that means that if we're going to be asked to fill out these score sheets, that we need to have a better understanding of what the scaling is, or we need a less fine-grained scale. Because if somebody can tell me the difference between a 6 and a 7 on the pain scale, then they are way beyond me. And I, I suspect nobody can do that.
1: What a great example. I think that kind of resonate with so many people. And why it's so poignant is we're sitting here going to all of these research sessions and we're learning as people living with the diseases at a scientific convention. That is presenting research that essentially is led by other stakeholders. We might be part of advising the team, but led by other other stakeholders. And part of huge measurements are these forms. And I don't know how much, if at all, our own psyche and wanting to keep the status quo, because we really don't know if it's beneficial is being considered. And why I think that's important is because if treat to target is about measuring improvement in small intervals, you know, whether that, you know, they said, but in the, in the study, it was four weeks versus three months. Mm-hmm. And we, as patients don't want to change that number, <laughs> then it's sort of, we need to come together and communicate about that. And I think that the the person who is leading that session, we need to reach out and, and email him because he said that they were doing their own work to educate patients on reporting and self assessments, how to read those, the importance of them, and they were even having the patients fill them out and calculate them themselves. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's something worth looking into. And how is it going? And is that something that maybe as an organization or as as people living with these diseases we could provide input on?
2: Well, I know that in as some of my doctors, I uh, fill it out and calculate it. They they ask me to calculate it. I'm more deliberate about that.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: I don't know what the what the deliberateness is about doing the calculation, but I also know that. The more fine-grained the measure, the less efficient I think the measure is. Again, I don't know what the difference between a three, a three and a half, and a four are. Right. And I don't think anybody can tell me. Now, I do think that I understand the difference between high and low, or the difference between no pain and excruciating pain. I think I can point that out I think I can even say that I was in the middle of those two, but when you assign a number to it, and the number is so fine grained that I can't tell the difference between one step and the next, then I think that the number loses the measure, loses its validity, even even in a population standpoint, because we know that my five is very well your four, and your four could be mm-hmm. my ten. And my ten could be your seven, and your seven might be my one, and who knows?
1: Right, and I and I think that that is one of the challenges. That's a great segue into sort of coming off to the the tail end of this. That's one of the things that they're trying to evolve and treat to target Mm -hmm. is this concept of originally standards of treatment were broad. Try this treatment. let's track these treatments. These treatments work for this many people mm-hmm. now they're realizing there's this individualization that needs to happen and it seems like individualizing our own sheets also should factor into that and you know i I, mm-hmm. I don't know either I don't know if there's a a code for seven or you know if if that's just the same for everybody because that would need to change like you said because it's what your 7 is could be you know my 10 right and 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 I think that is an extremely valid point that that needs to be considered the other thing about that individualization that leads us right back to the beginning of why this study was done in the first place because it didn't seem that the 2017 recommendations were really being adopted it said very specifically in those recommendations that it was strongly dependent on that patient-doctor interaction to make those work. And if a patient, which is what you had just said a little bit before, if you can't get in to see your doctor or you're not seeing them every three months, definitely, I don't know anybody who sees the rheumatologist every four weeks.
3: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: which was what was in that study. I, no one. I mean, I, I happen to collaborate with Dr. Kim. He's been on the show several times with our, our series Roomy Rounds. So I may talk to him more often, but it's not on a clinical visit. <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, that's that in itself, I just think is something that needs to be addressed. I hope that as these changes continue, that our voices can be at that table And I think that we've brought up some really relevant points today on ways that that could happen. There was one more review of a couple of the disease activity scores. And specifically, they went to the ones we've mentioned here today, the ASDAS and the BASDI. And the person who was doing the review was actually the developer of the ASDI measurement tool used in the original study, the TCOSPA study. She wanted to address the question, was it the right tool to be used in that original trial? Because there were so many issues that Rick and I have brought up. And she ended up comparing them. And essentially, the ASDAS is more complex. It's aimed towards the individual. It has some overlapping measurements, whereas the other one is all weighted equally, uh, so there's some flexibility for individualization. And it also is based on those 2017 recommendations. So they did recommend that that was the right tool, which kind of leads me back to then I think the solution is when they create the next research, if that is the right tool, then it just needs to be considered all of the things we talked about today.
2: So one more issue, we have to be careful that our rheumatologists are not judged by their patient populations against each other, because you really cannot take these scores and add them up and say, rheumatologist A is a better rheumatologist because her patients were able to move from an average pain score of seven to an average pain score of three and Rheumatologist B is a worse rheumatologist because over a year, his pain scores moved from four to five. We cannot compare rheumatologists in this fashion. That gets back to insurance and whether or not providers will be covered and at what level, and we have to guard against that. If anybody makes that proposal, we have got to say that is not a valid use of these statistics.
1: No, great point. And', and I'm,
2: I'm afraid that using these scales, someone could make that in- inference. And if they did, it would be it would be a uh, tragic blunder.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, even more of a reason why let's try to see what as, a, as an organization anyway that, that we can do to get our handle on helping, Any way we can, educating patients about what these disease activity score sheets are, um, how they're used, maybe how we can help as they become more individualized and treat-to-target continues to evolve. And the ideal goal of treat-to-target now is moving towards precision medicine. And and so we're already, as an organization, have our foot in the door with starting education with that. So maybe that will somehow Weave its its way in.
2: Uh, every bit of this is because there is not definitive blood work. Mm-hmm. You know, we like to have a definitive blood answer, and in these diseases, there is not a definitive blood answer. So we are tacking on all kinds of measures around this in order to substitute for the definitive blood measure. But each one we tack on is suspect. In its own right.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think to summarize on top of that, Rick, you said the blood work. And then there's also the issue in specifically spondyloarthritis, where you have the non-radiographic versus the radiographic. So then you have the imaging. Right. You don't have that measurement tool. And and then you have the comorbidities. Right. So there's a lot of challenges that lie ahead. And that is a good reason to challenge. Is is this a, a myth or reality? What we did find from the research is all of the speakers did say that it is absolutely a reality, but there's things that as it evolves, we need to evolve with it and we need to address the issues to um, move this forward, move the needle forward. Mm-hmm. And I think an overall takeaway, too, was that it's going to be dependent on each person's healthcare system, in addition to the individualized care. That happens between the patient and the, in the rheumatologist.
2: Right. Right.
1: I think we have covered everything. Am I correct? I do too. Well, look at us. I look do too. at us. All right. Well, Rick, thank you again for co-hosting with me. And Rick is one of our regular co-hosts now. So you're going to hear a lot more from him. Rick, where else can we find you?
2: Oh, you can find me. Uh, I write on rheumatoid arthritis.net, spondylitis.net, and at my own site, radiabetes.com.
1: And that's actually the first time I ever met you. It was, oh my goodness gracious, I want to say like 2015 or 14 at the ACR. And we had a booth and you came by with your card, your R- yeah, <laughs> <exactly>. diabetes. <laughs> that's, how I, that's the first time I met you. Um, so, yes, check Rick out. And then also, we are so excited that the sister site to this talk show has finally launched. It is still new. We are working out bugs, but it is the aiarthritisvoices.org online community. And inside there, you can talk to me and Rick about this episode. We will have conversations set up that you can join the table and continue the conversations. We also will have a few posted from the prior weeks, so that you can join those conversations, meet all the other co-hosts, so they'll be in there. So finally, we are going to make this full circle and have the talk show and the online community connect. So you can register. If you are a person living with our diseases or a parent of a juvenile, you are welcome to join. And you can find that again, arthritisvoices.org. We hope to see you in there soon. You can find this and all of our talk show episodes on our website at arthritisorg backslash podcast. And if you do listen to podcasts, please subscribe to us and give us a review. Rick and I would love to get a, a five star. I think we could.
2: <laughs> Even a three Yeah, would be good. but let's
1: wish her five. <laughs> And then while you're on the site, uh, if you love the show and you love the work we do as an organization, please hit that donate button. We say, give us a high five or a high 10. Every little bit counts to keep us alive and doing the work that we do. Otherwise, you can also find us, if you are a stakeholder who wants to get involved in this conversation, you're a researcher, rheumatologist, and you say, yeah, I would love to work with you all on this issue, you can um, either message us uh, by email at podcast at AIarthritis.org, or you can message us on any of our social media sites at ifaiarthritis, And that'll do it. So again, thank you, Rick. Thank you. And... Thank you, everyone who is listening. If you are a person living with these diseases, please pull up a seat at the table because only together can we change the stories of tomorrow.
0: AI Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. Find us on the web at www.airthritis.org. Also, Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the latest AI arthritis news and events.